Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant, according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I do believe that you intend to change lives through this portion of your word. You have said in your word, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It is as alive today as it was when it was first penned thousands of years ago. It will not return void, but will accomplish the purpose that you have for it. Lord, I believe you still have a purpose for us from this text, from your servant Paul, even this morning. So, Father, I ask that you would be with me as I speak, guard my mouth from error, and press upon your people your voice and your truth. May it be that in the final analysis, what was heard this morning was your word and not my words. I pray that I would warn and teach with all wisdom the word of Christ to these dear people for their maturation in him. Help me to do this with your energy, that you powerfully work within me. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our aim this morning is to answer the question, why did Paul preach and suffer for Christ? Both actions are crucial in this passage. And so that's our big question. And I want you to be asking yourself as you listen, why do I preach and suffer for Christ? Do I preach and suffer for Christ? Preaching Christ and suffering for him has always marked Christ's people. God commands us to proclaim Christ. This isn't casual talk about religious things over a cup of coffee. This isn't a command to make suggestions to people about changing a habit of living. This is preach Christ, announce him, declare him, proclaim him, herald him like a town crier. Hear ye, hear ye, a message from the king, our sovereign promises deliverance from judgment for all who turn away from their sin and trust in his son. And God promises his people will suffer in this life for preaching Christ. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The apostles were not afraid to suffer for preaching Christ. In fact, they did it with joy. Listen to this word from Acts 5. After they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So God is calling us now, in this hour, 
to give our lives to these two great tasks, which is really one great task. Preach and suffer for Christ in such a way as to show that Christ is your hope and your treasure. This is our highest calling and ministry as Christians. Preach and suffer for Christ in such a way as to show that Christ is your hope and your treasure. Where am I getting that from the text? Well, here's what I'm going to do. There are three main parts to that sentence that I just stated. Preach Christ, suffer for Christ, and then do these in such a way that shows that Christ is your hope and your treasure. And so if this passage were an airplane, verses 25 through 27 is the middle of the plane that carries the precious gospel cargo. And then verses 24 and 28 and 29 are the two wings that carry that cargo where it needs to go. And so I'm going to try to unpack how having Christ as our hope and our treasure is the goal of all ministry first, and then draw the implications for why we must preach and suffer for him. So in order to understand the goal of ministry, we have to look at Paul's description of his own ministry. He says, first of all, that it's the stewarding of the mystery. Let's look at verse 25. Paul has just finished saying in verse 24 that he suffers for the sake of the church, and the link between verse 24 and verse 25 is those two words, its servant. Paul is saying, in effect, I have become its servant, namely of the church, according to God's commission that was given to me for you. Note first that Paul says he became a servant according to the commission or stewardship from God that was given to him. Paul was entrusted with a specific ministry from God to the church. Paul loves to call a gospel ministry, minister, particularly for his own ministry, a steward. He uses that language throughout his letters. In Ephesians 3, verse 2, he refers to the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. In 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 2, he says of himself and the apostles, a person should think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and managers of the mysteries of God. In this regard, it is required that managers be found faithful. So the central mark of a good steward is faithfulness to the orders, to the mandate given to them by the master, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so laziness is excluded, and carelessness has no place, and private agendas and selfish motives are out of bounds. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And then Paul became something specific, right? A servant, and he became a servant of a specific entity, namely the church, right? He and all gospel ministers are servants of God's household, right? That is, they've been called, set apart, and equipped by God to exercise spiritual ministry on the behalf of the church. Stewardship from God is not for the minister's selfish gain. It's not for elevated status, no, it's given to the minister for the sake of the church. And the point of his ministry is at the end of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. Here's his great work. Here is his fundamental task. A minister is a steward of the word of God to make it fully known to the people of God. This is what the Bible says you should look for from your pastors. Administration is important. Wisdom and empathy and skill in pastoral care, that's essential. 
an array of ministry gifts, indispensable. But the great question that reveals a good and faithful steward is this, do they make the word of God fully known? That's the key question. And so here we have this clear and indisputable mandate for every minister, namely, to courageously preach all of Scripture, every book, every chapter, every verse, every glorious theme that is set forth in the Word of God, because all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for the people of God for every good work. As Paul was saying his tearful farewells to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he declared, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Beloved, he held nothing back. He ignored no doctrine, even ones like sin and judgment and hell. The divine stewardship that was given to Paul and the divine stewardship that was given to every gospel minister is first and foremost to make the word of God fully known. That is my primary responsibility here at First Baptist. This is what you ought to pray for. It is what you ought to come expecting to hear every Lord's Day. Pastor, bring the book. Well, how does Paul do it? Verse 26 tells us, Paul makes God's word fully known by revealing the long-hidden mystery. This is a statement about the current age that we live in, the time between Christ's first and second advents. For ages and generations, something had been hidden, but now, in this current age, it has been revealed. And Paul is contrasting, I think, two ideas of mystery Right, the false teachers had come and said that there was a mystery, a secret knowledge, a secret code that was needed to grow, to walk faithfully. And here Paul says, I have a mystery too. But it's not a secret code. And yet God has to reveal it. And it's something that we couldn't have known unless God revealed it. And so we can sum up what Paul is saying like this. I, as a servant of the church, am revealing the long-hidden mystery to the church. This is the ministry that God has entrusted to me. Now, that's still a little vague description of his ministry. The picture's not yet complete. We still don't know what the long-hidden mystery is and why it's revealed to the church. Well, verse 27 fills in the blanks. Here's the summary of this great mystery. Paul says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Isn't this interesting? First, he says, he reveals the mystery to the church. And now he says, God chose to reveal the mystery. Well, which one is it? It's both, right? God chose to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery through Paul. And so there's a unique relationship between God, God's minister, and God's Church, Paul ministers to the church on God's behalf by revealing to them the mystery. And what is the mystery? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The you there is referring to the Colossians. That's the once hidden mystery now revealed. Christ is in these Gentile Christians. What was not revealed fully in past ages was that the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, would actually reach out to non-Jewish nations and indwell non-Jewish people, that he would actually live in them, dwell in them, and give them the promise of Abraham, the hope of glory in the kingdom of God with all the saints. 
And so the mystery is God's divine choice to include the Gentiles in his plan of redemption so that they too would know the riches of the indwelling Christ, who is the hope of glory. And Paul's job is to make that known. That's his ministry. Reveal the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, to the church. That's what drives him. That's what motivates him. And before we move on, notice how Paul describes the revealed mystery. It is, he says, glorious wealth. What do you get in the gospel? Not just forgiveness, not just reconciliation to God, not just a clean conscience. You get Christ himself. Christ in you. The hope of glory. You're united to him forever in the gospel. And that is something for which Paul will spend his life gladly. The wonder, the glory, the riches of that great truth. Now I stated earlier that the burden of this text is to call us to preach and suffer for Christ in such a way as to show that Christ is our hope and our treasure. Where do I get that Christ is to be our hope and treasure? I get it from verse 27. Right? Put yourself in it. God chose to make known among us the glorious wealth of the mystery of the indwelling Christ. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. He sells all so that he can have all in Christ. Because Christ in us is the greatest treasure that we could ever possess. Think about it like this. In just a few passages earlier in Colossians 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul says that Christ created all things and holds all things together. That's huge. That's absolutely mind-boggling. When you go outside at night and gaze up at the sky, what you see is the Milky Way galaxy. There are about 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. On a clear night, you might be able to see a 40 millionth of them. The lights radiating from the nearest stars, besides our own sun, take about four and a half years to reach Earth while traveling at the speed of 186,000 miles per second. The disk of the Milky Way is about 100,000 light years across, or about 600,000 trillion miles. It is about 2,000 light years thick. It will take the sun about 200,000 years to complete one circuit. That's our galaxy. And it is just one modest-sized galaxy in a universe full of some 50 other million galaxies. And Christ created all of that with a simple command. That's all it took, just a couple of words. What well, is it any wonder that David wrote in Psalm 8, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place. What is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? Creation is the work of Christ's fingers. You know why David said it that way? To make it the point that creating those galaxies wasn't hard. <laughs> it was pinky work for the Lord. And right now at this very moment, he upholds it all by his powerful word. And yet this Christ who created the universe... It's the same Christ in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and who Paul is saying is now in us. Isn't that incredible? It ought to blow your mind. It brings the meaning of Emmanuel, God with us, 
to a whole new level. God is not only with us, he is in us. That's the mystery. What does it mean that Christ in us is the hope of glory? Well, hope is this. One day we will behold the glory of Christ face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, so we will commune with Christ. The final goal of every Christian is to be allowed to see what was denied to Moses. Moses asked the Lord, please, let me see your glory. You know, God, give me the big one. He didn't know what he was asking for. God said, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. Here's a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. Moses wanted to see the face of God, but he couldn't because he was just a man and a sinful man. Oh, how he desired to see God's face. The famous benediction of Israel captures that hope of the Jew so well. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. This hope that belonged to the Jews now belongs to the Gentiles, to us. In fact, it is more than a hope. It is a promise. 1 John 3, verse 2 says, Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And the fact that Christ indwells us now is the guarantee of that future glory. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we have the treasure of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in our bodies. Christ in us now as our personal, precious treasure gives us hope for the future. And until then, we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the glorious Christ who created the universe, took on human flesh, became our righteousness and our pardon, rose to life from the grave to defeat the sting of death, ascended into heaven, now sits at the right hand of God the Father. He is our treasure and our hope. That's why Paul labored so hard to make this truth known. It was glorious to him. It wasn't a stone. It was precious food, something to feed upon. He revealed the mystery because he reveled in the Messiah. Christ in you, the hope of glory, was the driving force and goal of Paul's ministry. This was the stewardship he was given from God. Now I ask you, what stewardship from God are you given for the church? What is your ministry? We may not have, we do not have, Paul's unique apostolic ministry. And yet each one of us, whether we are preachers in a church, parents in a home, employees at a job, or students in a school, has been entrusted with the gospel. We too are ministers of the mystery. And so what can you do to help the people around you and your family, work, school, church, to have Christ as their hope and treasure? Well, that was point one, unpacking how having Christ as our hope and treasure is the goal of all ministry. And I now want to draw out the implications for why we must preach him and suffer for him. 
So everything we've seen so far is pointed to Christ in us as the hope of glory. This is the reason why Paul preaches and why he suffers. Let's take the preaching first. Verses 28 to 29. It's not hard to see from verse 28. We proclaim him. We proclaim Christ. Right? Paul, the we, is talking about himself and Timothy, right? chapter 1, verse 1. They're both proclaimers. This is not just an apostolic task. Ordinary pastors, like Timothy, must do it too. Right? Thus, we announce Christ, we preach Christ. And this is the very next thing Paul says after describing his ministry. He says his ministry is to make God's word fully known by revealing the mystery of Christ in the Gentiles as the hope of glory. And the very next thing he writes is, we proclaim him. Right? The connection's unmistakable. How does Paul make known the mystery of Christ? By preaching Christ. Right? It's so simple. If you want people to know something, how are you going to communicate it to them? <laughs> With words. You have to open your mouth and speak. The best way for people to come to know Christ is by preaching Christ. Paul says in Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And so preaching is absolutely essential. But why preaching? Why this particular form of delivery? Why not teaching? Right, preaching and teaching are not the same thing. You can see that from the text. The manner in which Paul preaches Christ is by warning and teaching with all wisdom. Right? There's negative warning, positive instruction. Both are part of faithful preaching. You can teach without preaching, but you cannot preach without teaching. Well, what's the difference? Well, the word for teaching here is didasco. Right? We get our English word didactic. It has in view the transfer of information. The word proclaim means to broadcast publicly a message, to announce or declare a message. Teaching is involved to make sure that listeners understand the message, but the emphasis is on the proclamation. One of the best definitions I've heard for preaching is expository exaltation. Exaltation with a U, not an A. Expository means explaining what is there. Right? When we exposit chemical bonding. We explain how it works and its significance. All right? That's teaching. You don't necessarily have to be excited about chemical bonding to effectively exposit or teach chemical bonding. You just have to transfer the information, the content. But if you want to preach chemical bonding, you have to do expository exaltation. You have to delight in chemical bonding and be excited about it. You have to proclaim its truth and value to those people to persuade them to love chemical bonding as well. That's preaching, right? It's two wings on a plane. If you lose one of those things, the whole thing crashes. So we don't merely teach Christ. We preach Christ. It's not simply transformation, transferring information about him. There are a lot of people in hell who know a lot about Christ. The difference is they did not exult in Christ. They did not delight in him or cherish him as their Lord and Savior and treasure and hope of glory. That's why preaching is more than just a message to the head. It is also a message to the heart. It's the transfer of truth and passion from one soul to another soul. And God has designed the church to flourish under such preaching. 
We ought to implore God to raise up more preachers who delight in God, faithfully preach his word. Pray for your pastors who labor in preaching and teaching. We must give an account for how we handled our ministry of the word. So we are to preach, but whom are we to preach? We proclaim him. Not we proclaim moralism, not we proclaim politics, not we proclaim therapy, not we proclaim cultural transformation, not we proclaim ourselves, but him, Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners, the eternal Son of God, who took on human flesh, lived a perfect life for 33 years under the law, and who died on the cross. We proclaim him, the one that bled and died for our sins and rose victoriously from the dead. We proclaim him. Paul summed up his preaching ministry in 1 Corinthians 2 like this. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the offense of the cross he preached. He preached the mystery hidden for ages, now realized in Christ that Gentiles too would be partakers of this glory, the riches of the glory of Christ, being grafted into the covenant people of God so that they too would be filled with the Holy Spirit, that holy deposit, that guarantee of future glory. They too would have that hope of glory at the return of the Lord Jesus. Brothers and sisters, my prayer, and I trust it's your prayer as well, is that our church would be always centered on the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let not one sermon go by, not one Lord's Day go by, without the clear proclamation of Christ, because that is what we need. Those who are unconverted need it. Those who are converted need it. Every blessing and benefit you may know or enjoy as a Christian is a gift that is yours in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, the burden of my life's ministry, my message, is the word of God, at the center of which is Jesus Christ. He is the answer to the heart's need. He is the answer. So we really do need to demand of our ministers more of Christ. Whatever else they may teach us, however else they may train us, whatever discipleship we may enjoy from the pulpit and in classrooms and in small groups and one-on-one, if it's to be fruitful and enduring, it must be Christ brought to bear upon the issues and concerns of our hearts. We need to be like children at the dinner table, not satisfied if at the end of the sermon the minister hasn't pointed you to Jesus. You need to come to us, after us, and demand more of Christ because Christ is who we need. Settle for nothing less. But notice also his purpose in preaching. Paul says we preach Christ by warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The goal of preaching is to present everyone mature or complete or perfect in Christ. The gospel minister must aim for the spiritual maturity of everyone. Everyone, right? He repeats it. It's emphatic here. Spiritual growth is not for some elite portion of the congregation. It's for everyone, from youngest to oldest. And the aim is not simply to make converts or gain church members. It is to make mature disciples, followers of Jesus. 
Paul's aim in ministry is not simply to point people back to their justification without any real concern for their growth and their godliness. His aim is to point people to Christ alone for their redemption and to teach them to walk according to his commands. He does not say that you must do these things in order to be a Christian. He says, do these things because you are a Christian, saved by grace through faith in him. So you see, he calls Christians to holiness. And holiness, when understood properly, in no way, shape, or form, negotiates the gospel. In fact, we saw in chapter 1, verse 10, that Paul called the Colossians and prayed for them that they would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And again, in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And all throughout the letter, there are scores of imperatives, commands, in no way undermining the gospel, but saying this is how we live in light of the gospel. These imperatives do not in any way compromise the gospel, but as one old confession says, when understood properly, they sweetly comply with it. And then when all of God's people, including us here who believe, stand before him one day at his throne, we will be finally complete, perfect. We'll be glorified. We'll have reached our hope of glory. And the preaching we hear during our lives is one essential means of getting us there. The preaching we hear the gospel and are saved, the preaching we hear the gospel and are sanctified. And therefore, preaching is one crucial means by which we grow in grace and mature to become more like Jesus. And Paul says he preaches to present everyone mature in Christ. And then look at verse 29. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. In the end, the act of preaching is more of a battle with the heart than with the mouth. Paul knew that if he were to preach in such a way that showed others that Christ is his greatest treasure and his hope of glory, he would have to do it with Christ's energy that Christ himself powerfully worked within him. Now you might be thinking, this is all well and good, but I'm not a preacher. Well, yes, not all of us are called to be preachers in the church or on the mission field. Not everyone has the office of pastor. But all of us are called to preach in some sense. Your calling may not be to preach sermons on Sunday mornings, but you are called, if you're a believer, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ in your regular daily life. Who's going to preach the gospel to your kids? Who's going to preach the gospel to your relatives? Who's going to preach the gospel to your friends and your co-workers that will never darken the door of a church? Church, the task of warning others, teaching them with all wisdom about the holiness of God, the seriousness of our sin, and the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus belongs to all of us. And how in the world are you going to do this? Well, I have news for you, Christian. You are not up to the task. Me neither. Neither was Paul, actually. So how could he persevere through toiling and struggling so mightily? How did he fulfill his sacred stewardship? How will you? How can any of us? I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Your resources are meager and inadequate. You don't have the stamina that you will need. Your mental energy, your emotional intelligence won't get you very far. 
Neither will it me or nor any of us in the service of Jesus. How will we make it? Paul could toil and struggle, and so can you, so can we all, as we serve the Lord together because of Christ's energy powerfully worked within us. There is a deep well from which to draw that will never run dry for you in Jesus Christ. He will keep you. He will sustain you. He is enough. It's the strength of Christ that fuels the ministry. When God calls you to serve him, do not rule yourself out because you look at the tank and you say, you know, the tank is empty. I don't have the resources. Brothers and sisters, the Lord will supply the strength that you need to serve him. There's power to sustain, to keep you, to energize you, to enable you, to empower you, even if it involves toil and struggle and suffering, that you may live for the glory of his praise. So the goal of all ministry, whether public or private, is to help, to help others have Christ in them as their hope and treasure. That's what all ministry should aim for. That's the goal. And preaching is one primary means of helping point people to Christ. It's absolutely essential. But Paul mentions one other thing we can do to help others know Christ, and that is suffering. A certain kind of suffering, anyway. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. It's a strange thing to say. He rejoices in his sufferings. How many of you rejoice in your sufferings? This man was in prison. He'd probably been beaten several times. The lacerations on his back hadn't had time to heal before they were struck with 39 more lashes. So Paul's back probably looked like jelly. He was cold, probably couldn't sleep. And he's rejoicing in this. <laughs> That's incredible. He's suffering. It's clear that the sufferings of you are physical. They are in my flesh, he says. There's pain in his limbs. He has the scars to show for it. Notice why Paul endures these repeated rounds of suffering. Why does he keep walking into one wave after another of persecution and affliction like this? I rejoice in my sufferings for you, he says. He does it for the sake of the church. It is love to the people of God that drives him. It is a burden for the lost that animates him. It is the knowledge that he has been commissioned by the king of kings to go into harm's way to rescue the perishing elect of God by announcing to them the good news about Jesus. Notice the fascinating, difficult phrase there in the middle of verse 24. Here's how Paul thinks of the suffering that he endures. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh... What is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church? What on earth is he saying? <laughs> that almost sounds like blasphemy. It would be if what he meant was, I in this prison cell and completing what is lacking in the atoning work of Christ. That would be a complete heresy if that's what he meant, but it's not what he meant. Of course, Paul doesn't mean that Jesus' suffering for the church at the cross was somehow deficient, right? He's made the glorious sufficiency of Christ's person and work clear. He would agree with Hebrews 10, verse 12, which says, Christ, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And Christ said, it is finished. He meant it. He's done it all. It's complete. A perfect atonement. A perfect redemption so that anyone who looks at Jesus and trusts in him to be their savior will be redeemed. There's no inadequacy in the saving sufferings of Christ. 
So if it doesn't mean that Christ's suffering is somehow deficient, what does it mean? Well, some think, and they may be right, that Paul is speaking of the biblical concept of the messianic woes. Here's the idea. The world hates Christ. It's not done afflicting him. There are more afflictions for Jesus that the world has yet to mete out. But since they cannot get at Christ, what is left over in the afflictions of Christ now fall to his representatives and spokesmen, to his church, to his servants, and in particular to his ministers. As Paul says in this view that the hatred of the world, the enmity that exists between Christ and the world, is now turned towards him. And the sufferings he endures is the suffering that is the visceral response of a world living in rebellion to the claims of King Jesus. Every dart, every wound, every fist that afflicted Paul, he knows really has Jesus' name on it. It's all meant for Christ, but it lands on Paul. Sometimes there's a very real cost, a physical cost, for those who go in Christ's name. That's a sobering thing. Well, I actually don't think that that's what Paul has in mind here. I think Paul is not speaking of messianic woes, but missional suffering. Now, of course, these views are compatible, aren't they? But we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And the best cross-reference for this verse, I think, is Philippians chapter 2, verse 30. If you just turn back a page or two in your Bible, you can look at it. Paul makes an almost identical statement in the Greek language concerning Epaphroditus. And the context is, is this. Epaphroditus had been sent by the church in Philippi to give Paul a gift from the church. They had taken a sacrificial love offering for Paul, and they didn't have the mail service that we have today, and so Epaphroditus had to personally travel to Paul to meet Paul's need. And on the way, he nearly died. He became very ill. He almost didn't make it. And Paul is writing to the Philippians to tell them Epaphroditus has recovered, and that he's sending him back to them, and he wants the church to receive him with joy and honor him. And the reason he gives for this is in Philippians 2, verse 30. Listen to it from verse 29. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Now, what was lacking in the Philippians' service to Paul? It was not the gift. (laughs) They had it ready. The Philippians were his most supportive church. They loved Paul. And so what was lacking in their service was not the worth of their service, since they had the gift. What was lacking in their service was the presentation of that gift in person to the one for whom it was intended. Epaphroditus filled up what was lacking in the Philippian service to Paul by presenting the gift personally to Paul. And I think that's exactly what Colossians 1 verse 24 means. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ is not atoning, saving value. What is lacking in Christ's afflictions is the presentation of those afflictions in person to the people for whom the afflictions were intended. Christ has ransomed people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. How are they to come to know the infinite worth of the sufferings of Christ? One way is by preaching, and the other is by making a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to them through suffering. 
This is why Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. When people looked at Paul's wounds, they saw Christ's wounds. Through Paul, people could see the love of Jesus. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12, We always carry the death of Jesus in our body, so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. So then, death is at work in us, but life in you. Christ reveals his sufferings through our sufferings. And that's why Paul said, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. And if there wasn't a resurrection of the body that we could bank on, and we still joyfully embrace suffering, we'd be fools. People would pity us. If there were no hope of glory, right, the suffering would be for nothing. But there is a resurrection to look forward to because Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore, we can not only suffer, but also rejoice in our sufferings because through them, we show the world how much Christ means to us. So the way we suffer is the way people can see Christ in us as our hope of glory. If we suffer begrudgingly or curse God in our suffering, Christ will not be seen to be great. We will not show to others how much we cherish Christ if, in our suffering, our demeanor says something negative about him. But if we joyfully embrace suffering as part of the Calvary Road and a means to fulfilling the Great Commission, then Christ will be shown to be great, and maybe people will ask us a reason for the hope that is in us. You know, we always take that verse and use it to make a case for apologetics. But in reality, it's a verse for evangelism. You have to read the verse just before it. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. Maybe the reason people don't ask us a reason for the hope that is in us is because the way we live sends the message that we are all hoping in the same thing. And it's not Christ. Well, brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. And so I implore you to preach and suffer for Christ in such a way as to show that Christ is your hope and your treasure. I want to end with a story of how the life of one extraordinary young girl pointed someone to Christ. She wasn't a preacher. She wasn't a missionary. She was an ordinary Christian like us. The story is found in Sergei Kortikov's autobiography, The Persecutor. Kortikov was commissioned by the Russian secret police to raid prayer gatherings and persecute believers with extraordinary brutality. But the afflictions of one believer changed his life. I saw Viktor Matveyev reach and grab for a young girl, Natasha Snadinova, who was trying to escape to another room. She was a beautiful young girl. What a waste to be a believer. Victor caught her, picked her up above his head, and held her high in the air for a second. She was pleading, don't, please don't. Dear God, help us. Victor threw her so hard she hit the wall at the same height she was thrown, then dropped to the floor, semi-conscious, moaning. Victor turned and laughed and exclaimed, I'll bet the idea of God went flying out of her head. 
On a later raid, Sergei was shocked to see Natasha again. I quickly surveyed the room and saw a sight I couldn't believe. There she was, the same girl. It couldn't be. But it was. Only three nights before she had been at the other meeting and had been viciously thrown across the room. It was the first time I really got a good look at her. She was more beautiful than I'd first remembered, a very beautiful girl with long, flowing blonde hair, large blue eyes, smooth skin, one of the most naturally beautiful girls I've ever seen. I picked her up and flung her on a table face down. Two of us stripped her clothes off. One of my men held her down, and I began to beat her again and again. My hands began to sting under the blows. Her skin started to blister. I continued to beat her until pieces of bloody flesh came off among my hand. She moaned but fought desperately not to cry. To suppress her cries, she bit her lower lip until it was bitten through and blood ran down her chin. At last, she gave in and began sobbing. When I was so exhausted, I couldn't raise my arm for even one more blow, and her backside was a mass of raw flesh. I pushed her off the table, and she collapsed on the floor. To Sergei's shock, he later encountered her at yet another prayer meeting. But this time, something was different. There she was again, Natasha Stanova. Several of the guys saw her too. Alex Guliev moved toward Natasha, hatred filling his face, his club raised above his head. And then something I never expected to see suddenly happened. Without warning, Victor jumped between Natasha and Alex, facing Alex head on. Get out of my way, Alex shouted angrily. Victor's feet didn't move. He raised his club and said menacingly, Alex, I'm telling you, don't touch her. No one touches her. I listened in amazement. Incredibly, one of my most brutal men was protecting one of the believers. Get back, he shouted to Alex. Get back or I'll let you have it. He shielded Natasha, who was cowering on the floor. Angered, Alex shouted, you want her for yourself, don't you? No, Victor shouted back. She has something we don't have. Nobody touches her. Nobody. For one of the first times in my life, I was deeply moved. Natasha did have something. She had been beaten horribly. She had been warned and threatened. She had gone through unbelievable suffering, but here she was again. Even Victor had been moved and recognized it. She had something we didn't have. I wanted to run after her and ask, what is it? I wanted to talk to her, but she was gone. This heroic Christian girl who had suffered so much at our hands somehow touched and troubled me very much. Well, the Lord later opened Sergei's heart to the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. And as he later reflected on Natasha, whom he never saw again, he wrote, And finally, to Natasha, whom I beat terribly, and who was willing to be beaten a third time for her faith, I want to say, Natasha, largely because of you, my life has now changed, and I am a fellow believer in Christ with you. I have a new life before me. God has forgiven me. I hope you can also. Thank you, Natasha, wherever you are. I will never, never forget you. What Natasha had was Christ in her, the hope of glory. And it was her testimony and suffering that caused Sergei to want to ask her a reason for the hope that was within her. And through her ministry, one lost soul came to Christ. And so I call you once more, preach and suffer for Christ in such a way to show that he is your hope and your treasure. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose from the dead for you. 
and he is within you. Are you willing to take this glorious mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, wherever you go? This is our highest ministry as Christians. Are you willing to preach and speak and suffer for the gospel? Let's pray together. Father, there may be hearts in this room that have not embraced your Son as Lord and Savior and treasure. They don't have Christ in them, the hope of glory. And so I ask now that you would cause them to see Christ and receive him for the salvation of their souls. Father, there may be mouths in this room that have been shut, either by timidity or the fear of man, Mouths that are enslaved to other pleasures. Mouths that prefer to speak of other things besides your glory in the gospel. Lord, I ask that you would touch tongues. Do what you did with that deaf man who had a speech impediment. You spit, you touched his tongue, you said be opened, and the man spoke plainly. Lord, command that of us. Command tongues in this room. Be opened, testify of me. Do that in us. And Father, there may be lives here that are wrapped up in the comforts of this world and are unwilling to suffer for your name. They won't have it. They're like Demas, who in love with this world left the cause of the gospel to pursue a life of ease. Lord, I ask that there would be no such one among us. Help us, O God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, who indwells us, to endure the sufferings of Christ with joy. Lord, if there are hearts to be changed, mouths to be opened, lives to be shaken, I pray that your spirit would come right now and do that in us. Make us useful servants and faithful ministers for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.